It's a different world since Hodder Education last hosted 1,500 students and teachers at the Hazard Student Conference in 2019. But great news, they are extremely excited to announce that they are getting the band back together again in November 2022. Inspire your A-level geography students by bringing them along to hear from the expert panel, including Dr. Martin Degg, Professor Fiona Tweed and Professor David Pedley in Nottingham, Manchester and London on the 18th, 23rd and 25th of November. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash hazards hyphen 2022 to explore the full lineup and program as well as the chance to provisionally book your students' places. Thanks for joining me today for another job pod. This morning, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Winter and Dr. Daniel Whittle. Chris, you're an honorary research fellow at the School of Education at the University of Sheffield. And Dan, you're a teacher of geography at Trinity Sixth Form Academy in Halifax. Welcome to job pod. Thank you, John. Thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to both of you. And I, I know today I want to talk Oh, we're going to talk about the Geographical Association quite a lot today because it continues to innovate. And uh, we want to talk about a new role, which is um, the GA's research engagement lead, which you two are uh, doing as a job share. Before that, I, it's always quite nice to find out a little bit about the people who are taking on these roles. So this is a bit of a fundamental question, but I do ask it of quite a few of the people I chat to. I'd like to know why both of you have become geographers. Why have you become what you are? What were the drivers that put you where you are today? So, Chris, if you're happy to start on that one. Yeah, certainly. Thank you. So uh, going back quite a few years, um, I loved the subject of geography at school, uh, mainly because um, it seemed to make the world so orderly and under control, um, easy to understand. But then a bit of a critical incident happened to me when I was 17 on a geography field trip. We went to the Isle of Arran and I saw my first U-shaped valley and I'd drawn and annotated so many U-shaped valleys in my school years in geography classrooms. But then I saw a real one and it pretty much blew me away because it made me think that geography and the way it describes the world isn't in neat little lists of factors affecting uh, reasons for, consequences of, but there's much more to it than meets the eye. This U-shaped valley, it was the, um, the Valley of Glen Rosa on, on Arran, and it was huge. It was really frightening, actually, because it was a dark and rainy day, and it was magnificent in a sort of almost a a cathedral type way, but even bigger than like 10 cathedrals all put together. And, and it wasn't anything I'd ever experienced before. So it, it actually made me think there's more to geography than my neat diagrams and my notes. There's something beyond those compartments of knowledge that feel under control. It really made me want to know more about it, got me hooked. That's an amazing coincidence that you say that, because um, I used to take our sixth form to Aaron every year. Oh. <laughs> they went to Loch Ranza Field Centre. So we've stood at the 
at the bottom of Glenrosa and walked up it many, many times with students. And I'm sure I've told this on a, a podcast before, but I have a I have a student that I've, I've kept in touch with on Facebook. And I was doing the high-level route into Zermatt. And he said to me, do you mind if I put you up? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm, I'm running a suite of luxury apartments and I've got one that's free. And he said, I'd just like, I'd like it to be a late thank you for taking me to Aaron, because when I stood in Glenrosa and looked up that valley, I knew that I wanted to work in a mountain environment. And here I am now. I think that's an amazing experience, but what an amazing coincidence as well. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, that, that is absolutely amazing. I thought that was you know, an experience that was unique to me, but clear, clearly not, you know, in that particular context. But the, I've got another reason why I'm a geographer, and it's to do with the important role that the subject and the whole business for understanding the world and its people um, has got to make to society. Um, and it's such a diverse subject that it's got contributions to make socially, economically, environmentally and in relation to questions of justice. I think that there are many other reasons why I'm a geographer, but they're two key ones, I think. The other thing that got me while I was in Scotland, I have to say that this wasn't on a, a field trip, this was me, was standing in a valley and watching a meandering river and thinking, we're in the mountains here, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit to that little long profile that we learnt in geography. So what's going on here then? And having to go back to the geography teacher and saying, look, this diagram says meanders occur in the lower course and in the middle course, and I'm in the mountains and I've just seen a meandering river. What's happening? <laughs> that was one little spark. But as you say, there are many things, aren't there, that make you think the world is much messier, the physical world and the human world, and geography helps us to explain some of that messiness by looking at those interconnections. Dan. Thanks, John, and, and thanks for the invitation to be on the podcast. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? You talk about the messiness of geography. Some, sometimes the world's a little bit too tidy for its own good as well, isn't it? Because would you believe I also went to the Isle of Arran and stayed at Lochranza for an A-level geography field trip. So, uh, yeah, for all that we like to focus on diversity and global complexity, <laughs> there are also these little quirks of, you know, quirks of coincidence aren't there, that come through in geography. But I, I don't really trace my being a geographer to, to the Isle of Arran, even though I, uh, I had a great time there. Um, nor really to school geography, actually, in a, in a funny kind of way. Um, I enjoyed geography at school. I did well in geography at school, uh, but I, I didn't really identify it, or I still don't really identify it as, some, as something that sort of drove me on as, as a geographer, because I effectively went to university just because it, it was the subject that I was quite good at, and I was encouraged to go to university. And I was one of those teenagers that didn't really know what else to do at that point. And so teachers suggested university. It seemed like a good excuse to, to sort of get away from home and so on. And so and so off I went to, to study geography because that was the subject I did best at. And even the first sort of year or so at university kind of struggled to, to grasp what this thing was and, and then took a module at the University of St. Andrews, but a guy called Dan Clayton on geographies of imperialism and colonialism. Uh, another unit the same year by a chap called Joe Doherty on um, development geographies. I forget the exact title of it. Um, and you've got to remember, you know, this is this is shortly after 2001, the global context there in, in terms of, yeah, the, the sort of politics of of colonialism and some of the issues that are, that are large in the world at that stage. And some of the work geographers are, are doing on that at the time, people like Derek Gregory, people like David Harvey, Doreen Massey and so on. And it, and it was that really that brought this thing to life for me and, and made me see 
I guess, the kind of worldliness of, of academic study and, and, and its potential relevance and, and the way that geographers analyse events that are taking place in the world, draw parallels between different places, draw parallels across time, and potentially have, have the opportunities to seek to, to intervene in the world as well, to make statements uh, in relation to some of those global issues that, that Chris was talking about a moment ago. And I kind of never really looked back from there, really. It was, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a really sort of profound time to be engaging with the world and, and ideas and, and, and to do that as a geographer and to think through what that meant as a geographer as well. I didn't come across that when I was at university. I, I went to Sheffield University at the height of this. Well, it, it wasn't quite the height of the statistical revolution, but it wasn't far off. And we looked at Weber and Lersch and Kristala and those sorts of geographical patterns that entirely, for me, took geography away from people. And we were trying to explain things in terms of mathematics. And I really didn't like it. I've spoken to Peter Jackson about this at length in one of the podcasts as well, actually. And he, it, it was a springboard for him to be interested in that next level of geography. But it put me off. So I was much more interested in the physical geography side of things. And I came late to this stuff, which I think is now fascinating. But it, I, I probably wasn't clever enough to realise that there was a, a backlash going on at the time, a challenge going on at the time, because uh, Sheffield was one of the the strong areas of, of statistical geography at the time. Well, that's that's quite interesting, John, in a way, isn't it? In, in terms of the geography of geography and, and what gets packaged as geography at different institutions in different times and different places. I've, I've always been really struck by that passage in David Livingston's book, The Geographical Tradition, where he says something along the lines of geography's meant different things to different people in different places. And that a, a sort of history of geography that's adequate to the task of describing what geography is has to grapple with that question of not just what geography is, but what gets made to be geography at certain times and what people lay claim to as geography uh, in certain times. And partly that's that's that story you're telling there, isn't it? Different institutions, maybe at different moments in, in geography's history, packaging this thing called geography in, in different ways, and then thinking through what, what that means. Um, and, you know, partly that's about people. Certainly, the University of St. Andrew's Geography Department at the time and, and still now had, had a real, you know, a real emphasis on some of these critical issues and critical geographies, certainly in, in the, the areas that I was engaging with. And, and it's that combination of people in that department at that particular point that, that I guess delivered this thing called geography in the way that I encountered it in much the same way as, as you encountered a totally different image of geography at the University of Sheffield when, when you went through it. So that's fascinating, isn't it? It is. It, it fits with Alistair Bonnet's quote, isn't it? I've used this one before, but it's, he talks about geography and says, its ambition is absurdly vast, but it would be more absurd to not tackle that vision. What ties us all together as well is our involvement with the Geographical Association, which which isn't necessarily high on everybody's list if you do a straw poll of geographers i'm not sure what the percentage is of geographers that are a member of the subject association this is going to be a, a perhaps a triple-edged question really so i'll start with you chris what made you want to engage with um, with the geographical association and what what do you think it's for because it is seriously multifaceted but what's it for for you in in terms of my first engagement with the ga it was during my uh, PGC year in Leicester uh, in the 1977, I think it was, when Patrick Bailey, who was the tutor leading the course, encouraged, encouraged us all as students to join the GA. Um, so, so we did. And so in the early days of my career, 
I, I regularly consulted the journals, went to conferences and sort of experimented with those ideas in my own lessons. And it gave me a sense of, of being able to, to innovate because it was those were the days, of course, before the national curriculum. So I started teaching in 1978. So I had eight years before, the, well, it was later than that, nine or 10 years before the Geography National Curriculum was introduced. And I worked in departments where there was a lot of innovation and, and innovation was encouraged. Curriculum development was encouraged. Um, I was involved in co-authoring two separate sets of Key Stage 3 textbooks, for example. So, and the GA fed into all of that, you know, made me more experimental and trying things out. And so I think it's it's had a very key contribution to make to geography teachers for, for, for many, many years. But I was also part of the um, Sheffield Community of Geography Teachers when the local authority advisors were removed. And I think since then, the GA has had an increased importance and role in geography teachers' lives in the sense that it's, it's sort of a national organisation that gives that support and opportunities to network to geography teachers. That's what the local authority advisors were doing um, before, before they were removed. So I, I think it's a really crucial role to play uh, nationally, of course, instead of locally, the, the, the local authority advisors worked with us on in, in groups, work, meeting together in the evenings, planning curriculum development projects, etc. And, and that's what the GA is doing and more now. You know, I've just got a list here, the journals, the conferences, the CPD courses and events, projects, consultancy reports, advice, advice to government committees. It's a really active organisation. I mean, much more active than ever I thought it was before I actually joined the staff there. Because the, the number of things that are going on in that office is, is phenomenal. And outside of the office, of course, because all the volunteer volunteer groups. So, so the GA gives um, teachers um, opportunities and support to collaborate, to learn, to network, share their experiences and collaboratively work towards improving I would say the policy and the practice of geography education. So yeah, it's it, I think it plays a key role really. And I I mean I agree that not everybody's a member of it, but you know it it's it, it offers a service that I I think will and can and does improve the practice uh, of teachers. It would be interesting to see how many people aren't members but dip in. Mm. So what engagement is compared to what the membership is I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I presume the figures would be reasonably easy to get and, and perhaps they have got them now where you can look at who's engaging with the the website and downloading various bits and pieces hey what well another coincidence here then because I yeah I did my teacher training in 1977 <laughs> but that was in Sheffield with Jim Jay who wrote geography with a little latitude and it, of course, then that gave me the chance to wander down to the Forward Road Library, to the Fleur Library, and pick up all the various bits and pieces from there, the, the games and the innovations and the excitement. And people, I've said this on courses before, and people have said to me, how did you know what to do if there was no national curriculum? But it was an exciting time, wasn't it? There was all sorts going on. And I still got my new secondary handbook, the one that was edited by Norman Graves in 1980. 
it's sitting on a shelf upstairs covered in purple banda because I pinched lots of lessons out of it. <laughs> and it was an exciting uh, inquiry-based geography, even in those days. Right, top that then, Dan. Yeah, no pressure, eh? Um, I mean, it, that's an interesting question, isn't it, as well? We're talking about engagement with the GA, and I think before I, I talk about my stuff, it's, it's important we sort of, um, I don't know, just just kind of reflect on that for a moment as well in terms of the, the work that has to go in from the institution's perspective in terms of working out who isn't in the GA and also asking questions about why, why are some people not attracted to the Geographical Association? And this is, you know, reflective and important work that, that the institution's doing and, and has done you know, lots of in, in the few months um, that I've been I've been there, but I'm sure it's been going on before that as well. We can see uh, lots of employees at the Geographical Association spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, partly what do the members need from the Geographical Association and what are they getting and what do they want more of, but also what, what do we do to, to find out why it is that some people don't necessarily feel that affiliation with the Geographical Association and how we kind of, um, you know, work, work harder to engage and provide that service or those services that Chris describes for for all really for for the sort of full breadth of, of the geography teaching community um, and and you know hopefully when we come on to talk about the job that Chris and I are doing maybe that might feed into that and be part of that but there's all sorts of other challenges and interesting angles that, that we can go down in terms of thinking about who is and isn't in the GA and, and you know making sure that the GA is mindful of of the work we need to do as an institution to to be an attractive thing for people to join rather than just assuming that it's a, a valuable part of being a geography um practitioner i guess for me that the thing that really helped me i mean i i came to geography teaching out of the back of a a phd 2000 and sort of 2011 2012 about a decade ago um seemed to have these i don't know these these moments where i kind of jump into things at, at sort of significant times of, of global sort of crisis and, and change so of course at that point my PhD I've been thinking about academic work potentially and so on um, all of a sudden we're, we're kind of post-economic crash there's, there's real challenges in terms of academic work in my personal life I just had a child as well so the idea of moving from university to university as part of a career wasn't especially attractive should we say um, so I wanted something that would allow me to engage with geography but, but do so in a, in a slightly more fixed way um, and, I, and I sort of fell into a, a graduate teaching program um, opportunity with, um, I was living down south, just outside outside London at the time. Um, and so I, I taught at a school with a chap called Dan Cowling, who's my mentor. And Dan himself was quite involved in the Geographical Association, has been for a number of years, uh, school teacher. He was, uh, at the time, he was my mentor. He was also head of sixth form. I've got a feeling he's a head teacher now, although we, we've sort of long since lost direct contact with each other. But he, he was really engaged and a, a real... Uh, excellent mentor as a as a sort of early career teacher to, to sort of go into the profession with. Um, he recognised that I was somebody who was quite interested in geography ideas and, and that sort of crossover and that I would need support in realising that some things from um, academic geography don't cross over easily into the classroom and that, you know, there, there are real challenges in recontextualising some of that research and knowledge. Uh, Dan was actively involved in that kind of work. So he, he wrote, I think, for some GA publications as well as others. Uh, other outlets on health geographies and so on. Um, so he was a really engaged teacher with a lot of experience himself, uh, well-read in geography and, and really engaged with it. And, and I was in a really active, really interesting department. It was, it was a really sort of formative induction into being a geography teacher for me. Um, and, and this department was really engaged with the Geographical Association. And so I, it became second nature, to be honest, to um, to, to follow, follow that through. I remember going to a GA conference I think it was either in 2011, 2012, saw a lecture by Fran Martin that, that just sort of blew me away. Just re really, um, 
yeah, I, I just got a lot out of the engagement with the GA as it was uh, embodied through the teachers in the department I started out at, but also through my my engagements with the institution, which were kind of patchy and peripheral at that time, going to the odd conference. Um, I think I attended a CPD session at which uh, Alan Parkinson and, and Alan Kinder both spoke for early career teachers in, in 2011. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was an engagement there, but it, it was very much led by the department I was inducted into. And I, I moved to school shortly after that to, to take up my first teaching job and um, just happened to arrive at the time the head of the department there was really keen to submit or, or to sort of make use of the secondary geography quality mark as well. So I had this first year at school that was um, was really engaged with the GA. And then in my second and third years, we, we um, kind of compiled the secondary geography quality mark application. And so, again, that, that just kind of furthered it. Uh, by that point, there was national curriculum reform as well. So I, I remember us reading and reviewing in a department meeting the, the GA's response to the national the proposed national curriculum. So I remember particularly tense conversations about whether glaciation was something that should be taught at Key Stage 3 or not and, and things along those kind of lines. So I guess for me, that's, you know, part of that story of where I was and who I happened to be around. I, I was just very, very lucky to come to the GA through school departments where being in the GA and being a part of the work it does was, was kind of second nature. You mentioned in what you were saying there, the, the new role. So that was a nice segue into my next question, because it it is about the, the Geographical Association staying relevant, staying relevant in a world where you can just Google answers. Who needs geography when you've got Google? Or who, who needs a geography teacher when you've got Google? I think it was, was a book that came out some while ago. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about the new role then. Geography. The GA is in innovating in lots of ways, but this is a really exciting one. The roles research engagement lead, and you both of you have alluded a little bit to why we need it, but why was the post created? What's it for? If, if you start, Chris, why was the post created and what's its purpose? How, how does the GA see it influencing teachers? I think, well, I know from the job description that the research engagement leads role is to, well, three parts to it. First of all, to strike up partnerships with research institutions like universities and to engage collaboratively with the work of the people who are doing the work in the universities in order to bridge that gap between university research in geography and what's going on in schools. Secondly, to ensure that all those different activities that the GA is doing are informed by research. Um, so inputting research into the events, the publications, the CPD courses, etc. And finally, to support and encourage uh, geography teachers' use of research and their actually actual practice of research in, in their classrooms. So they're the sort of three roles that we've got. I guess the question of why, um, why this, these, this role is needed is... Is, is going is, is really related to a, a sort of bit of a gap, if you like, in, in the current situation um, where university research in geography has sort of blossomed and um, is very fruitful in many different directions, um, whereas school geography practice um, has perhaps not been as adventurous or as innovative. And we've got a lot to learn in, in, in schools from universities and likewise universities have got a lot to learn from what goes on in schools 
So there's a sort of reciprocal arrangement between, between the two communities and the two groups. Um, and what Dan, have I, Dan and I have found since we've been in this post is how receptive university researchers are to the opportunity to discuss and collaborate in partnership and going back to that word that Dan used earlier, to recontextualize the ideas and the case studies that are, are being developed in, in, in research areas to be used fruitfully in schools. Is it research in geography specifically, or do you also get involved in research into educational strategies, techniques? Will it be both, or is it largely to do with the, the innovation in geography, the new, the new knowledge, the new knowledge creation that we're, we're bringing in to, for geography teachers? How, how does it work, Dan? For us, at least, this, this, is, this is a really crucial question, and, and in part in terms of you know, assessing and working out what it is that geography teachers need for their practice. It's a diet of all of these, isn't it? And I, I think there's a there's an interesting Venn diagram. I can't remember where I saw it. It's in, a, in an academic paper on, on exactly this question. Uh, but it effectively said that what, what we need to be working towards is, is some kind of synthesis of research from the discipline of geography, research from the sub-discipline of geography, education research, um, and, and research and work into fields like children's geographies and so on to draw out the, the elements from each of those subfields that might then be usable and workable for teachers to enable teachers to see how those things might be relevant and to make decisions over what is and isn't relevant for their teaching practice. And then to see how teachers can speak back to those subfields as, as well and contribute as act, um, active researchers in their own ways or um, contribute through through dialogue in, in um, collective spaces, whether that be conferences, workshops, or, or just through written contributions and collaborations and so on. Uh, speak back to those various disciplines and, and sub-disciplines as well. I think what Chris and I are really aware of is, is that it's not really our job to define what research engagement means for teachers. It's, it's our job to find that out through conversation and work with teachers to support the work that's already going on and, and to acknowledge the kind of, um, yeah, I guess the really fertile time at which this job has been created, that there are real challenges and pressures in schools for teachers. We all know how frantic and challenging a job is I, I see it I'm still working in a, in a sixth form college three days a week and, and, and it is it's a busy it's a challenging job and the idea of being research engaged is not something that can always seem straightforward when you're Friday period five and, and you're kind of up against it but we do know through conversations with teachers through things that you see on social media through the kind of requests and engagements with the TA and, and the conference and all sorts of other things that there is this enormous appetite from teachers teachers are really keen to know more, to learn more. They may not always feel as though they have the time to, to be able to do that. And so part of what Chris and I see our job as being is to find out a little bit more about what it is that teachers would, would like support with and would like to engage with, whether that be from the discipline of geography or whether that be pedagogical research that applies to geography or, or whether that may, might be at the, the intersection of the two work like, I don't know, Margaret Roberts's work on inquiry learning, for example, which is clearly pedagogical in the sense of being about teaching techniques but it's also very geographical in terms of the way that she thinks it and applies it and engages it um so how, how do we set that to work and package that in ways that are usable and accessible for teachers i, I guess is is the crucial question at the heart of this uh, this job that chris and i have taken on and, and we don't know the answer yet and partly we don't know the answer because that will come out through engaging more with with the geography 
teaching and, and education networks and groups and, and collectives and so on. If I put my grumpy head on, my grumpy old man head on, there's a lot of, of rubbish to cut through as well, I feel. I've gone through lots of things, the three-part lesson, the five-part lesson, the six-part lesson, the auditory kinesthetic visual learners and having to... I know this was old old hat, but we this was before computers. We had to colour code our mark book. So we had red, yellow and green, and you had to colour in each of your students and then you had to make sure that a lesson had auditory, visual and kinesthetic elements to it. And then kinesthetic for geography became you get up out of your seat and you wander off to another seat and you do something different there. And that's the kinesthetic. And it was absolute nonsense. And we do get fogged off with some nonsense stuff that purports to have been researched. And I'm not entirely sure it is. And also things that are repackaged so they were interesting, then they get chucked out, then they get brought back again. So multiple choice questions at one stage were really quite innovative if they were done well. Then they became nonsense because I was trying to get somebody to write some questions for Worldwise. And one of the potential consultants said to me, I'm not doing that. It's, it's Trivial Pursuit Geography. And then they were reinvented again as hinge questions. And suddenly they're the bee's knees again. That's a long ramble, but how do you cut through that? Um, yeah, you're talking here about innovation overload, aren't you? And the and the, the very um, fast moving um, environment that, um, that that teachers work in when ideas arise and are grabbed and then are, are, are disposed of very quickly. And I think one of the issues here is is the need to ask teachers and talk to teachers about their views about what what not necessarily what works in the classroom but actually what what ideas are driving um those innovations where they come from whose whose ideas are they what are the purposes behind them and okay yeah try them out in the classroom but if they don't work then you know you've got to look beyond that so this this whole idea of teachers as researchers um experimenting with ideas in the classroom is, is, is a good thing. But the current climate in, in, in education makes that very diff difficult to do, I think. There's not a lot of space and scope for uh, teacher professional judgments in terms of outside of the box, as it were, outside of the policy, outside of the, the um, specifications that, that, um, that exist. Um, so, so research, I think, has a, a really important part to play here in the sense that I don't see it as something that's really um, very sophisticated, academic, intellectual. It's just about asking questions about your subject and about how you teach it and how you assess learning and uh, how you understand learning. Um, and, it, and it's the sorts of questions that really lie at the heart of, of being a good teacher of, of whatever subject. So, so I think in a way what Dan and I want to do is to try and take away from the whole notion of research that it's something that's that's highly specialised and elite and only people in universities can do it. Because basically, teachers are asking questions about what they do and how they do it all the time. That's the nature of the job. Um, and giving it a fancy name like research sometimes makes it seem like it's too difficult to do. But I mean, I do take on board, of course, what Dan was saying earlier about having time and space to actually ask those important questions. Um, and that's what we're, we're hoping to do and starting to do through some of the activities that we're 
that we're introducing into the GA. That, but over to you, over to you, Dan. I'm sure Dan can give a better Well, answer. I was going to ask Dan this because as I was doing a little bit of reading on this, I came up with these questions from Puttick, and I thought, well, this this really is quite sharp. What questions are we asking about geography education? Where do we go to find reliable evidence? And what kinds of standards do we require of this evidence so that we're not putting some of these more nonsense activities into mainstream education? So, Dan, three really hard questions. Yeah, thanks for giving those to me, John. I really appreciate it. They're really hard questions, but they, they cut to the heart of it, don't they, here? Um, you know, what questions are we asking about geography education? What, what's reliable evidence? And, and for me, I mean, what, what really stands out to me about some of the examples of, of the so-called nonsense research that, you, that you're talking through is, is that those supposedly nonsensical research ideas, they, they, they were very much institutionally supported, weren't they, at the time? And, and it wasn't just individual teachers that were advocating yeah. them. Um, they, they were being set to use in the context of particular approaches to education and, and particular ways of thinking about the purpose of schooling um, from sort of governmental and, and political levels. And I think this is really crucial, isn't it? There's, there's always a politics to research and to what get what research gets picked and chosen and selected at various points as being um, the, the sort of arbiter of good research and, and what it is um, to think about the purpose of education. And, and we see that change all the time. And so part of the, the way of responding to this set of questions about how we find reliable evidence and so on, I think is is to be mindful of the need for breadth rather than adopting a sort of singular focus on one way of doing research. This is very much, I think, at the heart of what Chris was saying there, that there isn't one set standard for research, one set way of, of doing it, or one model of what valuable research looks like. The idea of geography research and geography education research is fundamentally about its breadth. We go back to the conversations we were having earlier about the University of Sheffield and the University of St. Andrews. Even within university departments, what's taken to be valuable research or important research will mean completely different things in different times and different places. Um, so it's, it's, I guess, less about answering that question in definable ways and saying, well, you know, reliable evidence needs to have a randomised control trial associated with it, or it needs to have, you know, 5,000 research participants at least, or whatever it might be. And more about saying, well, how, how can this particular project, whatever its size, scope and scale, be, be usable and workable? What contribution are the questions that it's asking making and, and how does that fit in the classroom context of an individual teacher in the broad subfield of geography education or, or um, more widely in terms of asking questions about our world and contributing to, to geographical research I, I think it's really important that Chris and I kind of dodge the question that you're asking in a way John and, and sort of resist the impulse to say that we we are going to as part of this job set some standards that are required of research evidence and, and more actually find out what, what is valuable and usable in the particular context that we're working in right now with, with this job? And how can we find things that can move forward the teaching of geography um, in, in ways that ensure um, that we're living up to this responsibility to, to teach the world sort of, um, I don't know, fairly and in all, in all of its diversity? How, how can research contribute to that agenda uh, without necessarily having to say that some things are in and some things are out and so on? I don't think you dodged the question at all. I thought that was it. <laughs> Eminently sensible answer, to be honest. Thank you. <laughs> it, it all sounds really exciting. Let me ask you, what activities have you got lined up for the future? Because I, I know that there's a, there's a number of things that you've got in the in the pipeline. So if you could give us a flavour of those and just leave us excited for more when uh, when we finish off listening to this podcast. <laughs> 
going back to you know one of the key aims of our job in terms of building partnerships with um, universities and, and other research institutions, we just recently launched what we call the GIC project, uh, Global Inequalities and the Climate Crisis. Uh, it's an ESRC funded project in collaboration with the universities of Lancaster, Aberdeen and the Open University. And it's all about developing schemes of work, activities and resources uh, for teaching key stage, stage three students about how the climate crisis is affecting the everyday lives of people living in, in Cameroon in the Lake Chad area. What we're trying to do here is address the demand amongst geography teachers, um, which was identified in the GA 2022 National Research Report for some high quality, up-to-date teaching materials and activities relating to equality, diversity and inclusion in their geography teaching. The project sets out to investigate that relationship between human influences on the climate and global inequalities created by colonial legacies. We'll be drawing on the materials, the data, interviews and visual materials from um, another ESRC project, um, DEPA, Decolonising Education for Peace in Africa. And we plan to follow up the Key Stage 3 curriculum that's under construction at the moment with free CPD activities, uh, both online and face-to-face -face for teachers. So this is really our first project, if you like, in, in terms of um, getting funding for a project that the GA is uh, looking after the recontextualization of research findings from a university-based project into um, a package that is available, um, accessible and appropriate for teachers and meeting the current demands of teachers as well for more decolonizing materials uh, in the classroom. Yeah, and it's, it's a really exciting project, that one, Chris, isn't it? We're doing a lot of work with some really interesting academic research on, on a really really complex region of the world and looking at a cross-curricular issue like climate change, uh, but, but also thinking about the infrastructure of how we do that work as well and who's involved in it. So we've, we've just recruited um, a, a geography teacher to, um, to sort of participate in the curriculum construction from, from the UK end, and, and we're looking at the possibilities of recruiting a Cameroonian geography teacher as well and having conversations cross-region um, and, and at the heart of the project is, is ensuring that voices from folk in that region are, are kind of represented and, and are part of that curriculum. So there's really interesting questions that are being asked, kind of big theoretical questions, but also pedagogical everyday classroom questions about how, how do you represent the voices of distant communities and, and sort of equally and equitably try to convey their experiences to, to young people in, in sort of British school classroom context. And how do you then create resources that might be usable in Cameroonian geography classrooms and, and what does that look like and what are the challenges of that but also the opportunities of, of that dialogue so yeah, it's a really, a really exciting project. Now. I really like the idea of this I my next podcast is with Professor Danish Mustafa about uh, flooding in Pakistan and as I've been reading about that a lot of the work that they've done is qualitative and it's really interesting to get the voices of people who actually live there and it much more personalises that sort of geography, which is what it sounds like you're doing here with, with your voices of, of, of distant countries, because otherwise we just see it on a, a quantitative basis if we're not careful. It, it, becomes, um, it becomes something that, that people aren't involved with if you're not careful. It, it's just something that's happening with, without 
us having recourse to real lives, real people who are really suffering this. And this whole idea that there's the, the us and there's the them can be reinforced if we're not careful. We're all people, but you forget that if we don't look at these people in a context where they're having, they have a proper voice. What you see when you see it on telly is always oh, people in a flood or people in a famine and, and they don't get to speak and they don't somehow become really as human as we are if we're not careful. Yeah, I think that's right, John. I mean, I remember last year's Geographical Association Conference, Mar Margaret Roberts in, in her lecture made a, a valuable point. She showed some extracts from textbooks and other resources and, and was talking about the way that geography education has, has had this tendency to give voice to communities in distant places by, by making them up effectively. Um, you know, a, a little um, potted head figure of somebody from somewhere distant and a, and a little speech bubble coming off to the side and it, here's what that person said. Uh, Margaret was sort of talking about the, the idea that in... in um, you know, in the modern age that we're at work in today, it's much easier to find and to engage with the voices of, of distant others and, and to actually represent distant places through real everyday lived experiences as opposed to what we or what those involved in the production of educational resources would would kind of imagine them to be. And yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of reflecting on, on the, what we hope will be the significance of that, of that project, John. Absolutely. I'm really glad you've kind of reflected on it in that way because that's what we're sort of hoping will be one of the big contributions. And in a way, that kind of fits in. I don't know if this is a good time. I might just sort of segue into into one of our other projects as well, actually, because that idea of voicing people's experiences runs through another pilot project that we're just starting up on as well, um, with with some people in the uh, the University of Sheffield, Sheffield School of Urban Planning. We've just launched a, a pilot project. This is a smallish project for now, but something we hope will will grow. But it's also centered on this idea of who who has a voice and whose knowledge matters. Um, in, in issues related to geography education. So the idea behind this one is to work on urban planning um, and to think through the relationship between school geography education and, and urban planning. Obviously, geographers have long taught about urban environments and, and urban issues. Uh, we, we think there are really interesting insights and relationships potentially to, to uh, be engaged with in this dialogue between geography and urban planning that can be fruitful for, for both sides, uh, but that can also help each of the communities to, to ask questions of one another and what, what does planning look like from the perspective of a geographer and what role, role do geographers have in planning. Um, so we're working with um, Andy Andy Inch and Lee Crooks at the University of Sheffield. Um, they also for a long time have worked with a lady called Margaret Roberts and her Planning for Real project. Planning for Real is a kind of participatory community focused approach to urban planning that's all about giving voice to communities in the planning process and trying to explore what people on the ground in urban environments think about planning, how they can find spaces to have a voice in urban planning and so on. And so the idea here is, is to work with a small number of schools initially to, to think through what it looks like to engage young people in geography classrooms in urban planning, to, to sort of practically give them opportunities to ask questions about the areas where their schools are, or where their homes are, or where their communities are. Uh, so we've got over 80 A-level geographers who are going to be working with students in the University of Sheffield School of Urban Planning. Uh, they're going to meet in the schools and they're going to meet in the University of Sheffield uh, on, on two separate occasions for, for each of the schools that are involved. And they're going to think about how they can sort of question the knowledge involved in local planning. And each school is, is picking a particular area close to that school or of interest to that school, where the school students, the university students, will have a dialogue about that area, about what it looks like now, about how it might be replanned or reimagined in the future, uh, and what priorities the school students in particular would, would 
put forward if they were to imaginatively have the opportunity to, to rethink and replan and, and re-engage with those urban environments. So again, you know, there's everyday voices and things here, but there's all sorts of all sorts of other interesting angles in terms of urban planning and urban geography, thinking through the place of urban planning and urban policies in, in the curriculum. Um, and, and also just, I don't know, exploring that partnership between geography and the sort of more, I don't know, applied subdiscipline, if we might think of it as that, of, of planning and so on, and just seeing where, where that takes us as well. It's fascinating because I, I visited the department and I had a look at some of the models and they were looking at reimagining streets with certain things being taken down or reimagining streets with trees being put into them, reimagining how you might make a traffic-free zone without too much money. But they also had... Um, they had an index for working out what makes a better place, which was better than anything I'd found in geography at the time, which I thought would be a fantastic uh, tool for not just A-level students, for GCSE students. And I'd never seen it before. And it was it was just their tool for reimagining space. It was fantastic work. Uh, apart from that, you get um, you get a fantastic view if you go to the Arts Tower, don't you? Because they're, they're, some, they're not quite on the top floor, but they're not far off. And you get a fantastic vista of Sheffield from from the top there. Yeah, it's a fantastic project. And uh, I think the students will get lots out of that for both. I'm not sure how many teachers think about urban planning as a destination for their geographers. But I was just thinking this is just this is just geography, really. But geography for artists. And a lot of them would come in (laughs) being had you done A-level geography and A-level art and combined the two? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is part of the, the conversations we've been having with Andy and Lee at the University of Sheffield, really, is, is about, uh, you know, the, there are obvious engagements there, but there's also a bit of a disengagement, isn't there, between geography and, and urban planning in, in a way. And, and you know, what, what does it mean to think through that relationship moving, moving forward? I think is, is a really interesting set of questions. And we, and we think that there's really interesting things for, for both sides. And we think also this is, this is also really interesting pedagogically as well. You know, the, the idea that much of the teaching here is going to be being done by university students, not just academics and teachers. So there's, yeah, hopefully interesting models, both theoretically and, and pedagogically, that will come from that. That will also engage teachers in those schools in, in the act of research, which is um, some, something else that we're, we're broadly working on. You know, the teachers in this pilot project will, will be engaging with the university students and academics and so on and will be part of the research project. And, and that's been, I suppose, another stream of research that, or work that Chris and I have been doing. We've, we've begun a CPD programme called Developing Your Classroom Research that's, that's run twice. The next one is on October the 18th. So this, uh, this podcast episode might come out just before that, I suppose, or may, maybe not quite. That might be a bit too hurried, might it? We might be just afterwards. Um, but the idea of that is that's free online CPD, short one hour sessions where teachers can come in and join a community of other teachers who are trying to engage actively with research and, and to, to act as researchers, to do what Chris was talking about before, basically to ask interesting questions, either about the world or about their practice. Um, and we're trying to foster a space where people can have those conversations with other teachers who may be in faraway geography departments but can kind of support each other and, and help each other and guide each other through that process, see that we're asking similar sorts of questions, uh, draw on each other for resource support and, and to sort of, I don't know, just get that motivational boost when you sort of feel like you've hit a dead end in, in your research or where you feel like you're just too busy to be able to keep going with it. Sometimes just talking to others about what you're doing can, can be really sort of motivational and positive, can't it? So 
Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of working on on a series of of um, workshops and CPD offers that that might contribute to that sort of agenda. Um, Chris, I don't know if you want to say something about the writing retreats at this point. Um, that we, we'd see the writing retreats as the sort of sister of the uh, developing your classroom research CPD sessions. Um, and like the developing your classroom research sessions, they're online. Uh, we've had two of them so far, and they consist really of um, an opportunity for teachers who who are doing research and want to progress it, but also teachers who would like to do research and need a bit of space and time to think about what they want to do and how they want to do it. So they've been the two that we've done already have been either half day or one day period online um, with Dan and I sort of introducing them and putting a bit a few slides up just to sort of set the scene and, and start the conversation going. We've tried to make sure that built into the structure of the online sessions is time for teachers to just leave the session, sit or run or walk or do whatever they want to do while they're reading, thinking, planning their research. So it's an opportunity for teachers to protect half a day or a full day of their time, usually in the holidays, to just get into that state of mind, that frame of mind, where they can try and put everything else on one side and just focus on, on their research. We also build into the, into the events um, the opportunity to talk to either me or Dan on a one-to-one -one basis about their research, and also to talk to each other about their research. So uh, the, there are sort of like whole group discussions. They're not, the groups are not very big, but we can, we can um, put people into different breakout rooms if we, if we need to. So we're hoping that both within that time online, people can get the opportunity to talk to, talk to each other, but also outside of that time online, um, they can make those connections and collaborate and talk and support each other. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're very confident and, and um, excited about continuing these, these sessions, these CPD sessions, and they seem to have been very well received so far. So anybody who's listening to this um, podcast, if you've got an idea for research, if you're in the middle of, of doing a piece of research uh, or you're completing your MA dissertation and you want to come into a, a supportive um, and enabling community, then that's that's what we're we're offering um, in in setting up these these CPD sessions. So you're very welcome. Put it like that. The, the, the GA has got a long history, hasn't it, of, of research research into practice. I might call it really um, running projects with teachers with an element of professional development as part of the uh, as part of the package. Really, so you'd come, you'd do an initial piece of thinking, an initial piece of the chatting go away, try and put it into practice, come back and, and do your reporting. Coming back to urban planning, I, I did a, I worked on a project called Making My Place in the World with Dr. Sue Birmingham at Manchester Met University. And we worked a lot with, with planners, town planners, who were not sure how to get a, a way into schools. That project gave them it. And the students were, were really engaged in, by the whole idea of, this is my area. This is my geography. I must say that some of them didn't think it was geography to begin with, because they they, they thought geography was just distant places. But it it was um, a fascinating a fascinating project and a fascinating time for teachers. Dan, you talked about time. It, it, it is a problem, isn't it, for teachers? 
whenever you want to do something that involves thinking and research, teachers have to find the time from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I know as a, as a practicing teacher, the kind of pressures that, that people are under. And, and we do recognize that as a, as a real burden, even to attending these CPD sessions and things, you know, just just finding an hour to sit and, and uh, engage with people on a screen sounds, sounds like a straightforward thing to do. But when when you're working the kind of hours that teachers are, are working under the kind of pressure that everybody's under, especially at the minute after the past couple of years, thing, things have been really trying, really, really challenging. Uh, and so Chris and I are very aware that the work we're doing will, will not engage everybody. It's not for everybody. And that there will be a sizable number of people who may want to engage with it and just not have the time and the capacity. And so it's, it's part of our work really to find um, not just ways to, to offer interesting packages, but also to think through how we can resource this and make it accessible and engaging for teachers in, in a way that means they can actually find opportunities to to um, to make time for it or, or to, to sort of um, make the argument for engaging with this stuff within their schools as well. And, and to maybe, um, you know, find those little niches with, within their working days where research can, can be something that can contribute to their professional development or to their sense of their place within the geography teaching community. And I guess in a way, I mean, it's really important to acknowledge, we've talked for a long time, and I think it's really important for Chris and I both to acknowledge at this point the, the way we've drawn from things that teachers are already doing in this really pressing and challenging environment. I mean, a really formative influence for Chris and I, I think in recent years, has been seeing the work of the Decolonizing Geography Collective which is a really research-engaged community of teachers. You know, there are now around, a two, around 200 people involved. It's, it's doing the work that Chris and I have talked about effectively already without necessarily the kind of institutional support. It's, it's creating a space for academics and te practicing teachers to have conversations, to speak with one another, to, to sort of, um, yeah, take forward really interesting projects to contribute to wider debates within geography teaching and, and to think through the relationship between the discipline and the school. And I think that's a real inspiration for Chris and I in a way, to see the work that can be done by teachers and to learn from that, to contribute in our own ways to that while we can, but also to sort of, I don't know, give, give voice to some of the impulses that are going on within that collective and, and to find a space to support the, the work of some of the things that are going on there. For example, that group's about to hold a reading group on Sarah Radcliffe's new book, Decolonizing Geography, which I know a few geography teachers have been looking to engage with. And so there are really interesting things happening that we're kind of feeding into and drawing on and, and learning a lot from as well. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things at the heart of this job is just to go back to what we were trying to say earlier about the fact that it's, it's not the geographical association's place to define what research engagement is. Part of it is about learning from what teachers are already doing and creating institutional spaces through which teachers can, can find a voice or find the time or, or uh, find a way to make an argument for the relevance of this within their really hectic and high-pressured working lives. Now, if people want to find out more about the, the Decolonising Geography Collective, there's a, there's a fantastic website which a group of you curate, so we can put the link in for that, can't we? There's also a really active Twitter feed for people who'd like to follow that. And as I've just been following that, there's some fascinating things come up on there. What else will you be publishing? What, what's, uh, what's, the, what's the next moves for that? It's, it's quite an, an organic community, um, very active. Lots of people from Decolonising Geography WhatsApp group have written articles for teaching geography. We've done work with exam boards, uh, publishers, 
Um, there's the Voices Project, which is um, a means of listening to um, marginalised voices in, in geography classrooms. A whole host of um, different activities that sort of organically spring out of the community, um, often in response to needs, experiences that people are having in their classrooms and um, engaging the support of that of that community. Yeah, so in a way, we don't have a sort of strategic plan. Um, I don't, Dan, would you agree with that? It's sort of more spontaneous. Yeah, it's a real collaborative, community-centred effort, really. It's a group of people that's very open to new people joining as well. Um, but it, but effectively, it's, it's very much led by the day-to-day demands of things that come up. Sometimes it might just be as simple as somebody taught a lesson, came across something they found relatively problematic in an educational resource and, and wants to rethink how to repackage that or to reach out to an academic to see what they can offer in by, by way of response or what, what kind of conversations other people have and opinions other people have on, on those those resources or ways of teaching um, and, and whether they can find others within within that community to, to begin collaborations with. And, and um, yeah, there have been, been some really interesting, really fruitful collaborative partnerships that have grown out of very, very simple early conversations about, oh, I taught this today and I didn't really think it went as well as I would have liked it to do. Or actually this student asked this really profound question at this point and I don't feel like I know the answer to that question. Can somebody help me? You know, it's, it's that kind of a, of a space. Um, and, and we think, like I said, there's, there's lots Chris and I can, can learn really from that collaborative way of doing things and, and that way of trying to find a mechanism for giving voice to everyday teachers and, and pupils in geography classrooms to take forward the agenda of what geography means and how to think geographically. Oh, well, we'll definitely put the link in for that when, when the podcast goes out so people can follow up on this one if they haven't already. We've talked a lot right the way through all of this about time. And here we go. <laughs> Our time has gone too. I'd just like to ask you um, just where you see things going in the future now. Just a little just a little forecast of, of where you'd like this to be um, and any sort of advice for teachers, really. We've got various projects in the pipeline. Um, we've found that establishing and developing projects takes some time. Um, so it's not something that you can you can do overnight. We need to think hard about these things and interact with potential partners and <clears throat> develop trusting relationships um, with, with partners in order to work collaboratively together. So we've got things like um, a potential studentship opportunity coming up. We've got other universities beyond ones that are involved in the Git project um, who we're talking with about future about future projects. The vision really is is to see what we can do to try and make the Geographical Association um, something of a hub for research engagement and something of a, of a place where people will come to, whether that's teachers or academics. We, we spoke earlier about trying to to do the work of working out why some people are not already engaged with the work that the Geographical Association is doing. And hopefully Chris and I, through our work, can use research engagement, whatever that means, and in part defined by people that we, we will work with and collaborate with. And, and please see this as an open invitation to get in touch with us and collaborate with us further. Uh, but we hope that will be shaped by, by whatever engagements we, we sort of come into contact with as we move forwards. Um, but hopefully it's, it's part of furthering the GA's agenda to be this hub and network of, of um, research informed and engaged teaching that, that can drive forward the experiences that young people get in, in geography classrooms and empower geography teachers to, to find really engaging ways to convey the subject and, and to think through what it means for them to, to be a geography teacher in, in this particular moment and in their particular school contexts. 
Well, I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it'll be a success. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And it was really interesting chatting to you both about it today. So thank you very much for giving up your time. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>